This morning, we come to the exclamation point of all of Romans 9 through 11. In Romans 9 through 11, these three chapters as a unit have been wrestling with the unbelief of the Jewish people through the perspective of the eternal plan of God, as well as from the human lens of the unbelief and the stubbornness, hard-heartedness of the Jewish people. And Paul has revealed to us in chapter 11 an incredibly wise, incomprehensible, majestic plan of God for the ages. What Paul has revealed is that everything that has been happening with the Jewish people, as well as then with the gospel going to the Gentiles, all of it fits into God's salvation historical plan for the ages. God is accomplishing something in what's happening. In other words, Paul is revealing to us that the unbelief of the Jewish people, even though he is brokenhearted by it, and he desires for his kinsmen, his Jewish brethren, to be saved, he understands from the revelation of the will of God that the unbelief of the Jewish people is not an accident. It's not an accident. It, and it's not something that is outside of God's sovereign control of history. In fact, it is accomplishing God's purposes for history. It's an amazing thought when you step back and you see Paul pull back the curtains on how God's plan is unfolding. You can see why he concludes this passage the way he does. Why he concludes with this hymn, this doxology of praise to God. What he has revealed is that in the eternal sovereign purposes of God, the unbelief, the hard heartedness of the Jewish people is actually intentional. It's a part of God's plan. He has hardened them. He has hardened them for a time and partially, but he's done it so on purpose. Why? So the gospel can go out to the world. Paul reveals to us in this amazing plan of God that the unbelief of the Jewish people has been planned by God so that then the gospel could go out to the Gentile nations. The apostles, you can read this in the book of Acts. The apostles started receiving intense persecution at the hands of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. Peter and John were arrested. Peter and John were beaten. Peter and John were told, do not say, do not preach, do not proclaim any more in the name of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter and John say, what could we do? We, we have to obey God rather than men. We have to go on proclaiming that Jesus is the Savior. He is the exalted, risen Lord. And so the church began to receive intense persecution in Jerusalem. What was the result? They started going out. They started going out to, to Judea, to Galilee and Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, as Acts 1.8 predicted that they would. 
And so the intense persecution, the persecution that came as a result of the stubbornness and the unbelief of the Jewish people that drove the gospel outward from that epicenter in Jerusalem. It drove it outward to the world. And now you and I, we are beneficiaries of that. We're beneficiaries of that plan of God that sent the gospel out to the world so that I could be born in America in 1974 and have Christian parents who would teach me the gospel. Thousands upon thousands of miles away from Jerusalem and hundreds upon hundreds of years removed from the death of Jesus Christ. But the gospel went out far and wide all around the world. And now you and I, Gentiles, were believers in Christ. And Paul says that was part of God's plan. But that's not the end of God's plan. Because we saw last week that the full purpose of God's plan is then to turn that around again and to see the Jewish people brought back in. To see the Jewish people regrafted in to that olive tree. So that Paul could say in Romans eleven twenty six, and in this way, in this manner of God's infinitely wise plan, all Israel will be saved. And so the gospel will come back then again in full circle back to the Jewish people, back to the people of Abraham, back to the ones that he made a covenant with, and they will be saved. Why is that important? Because it shows the faithfulness and the unchangeableness of the covenant promises of God to Abraham. God hasn't abandoned them. He has a plan for them, for their salvation. But their temporary and partial hardening resulted in my salvation as well. So that Paul can say then in the end that God has worked it out such that he has placed all under this condition of sin. Both Jews and Gentiles under this condition of sin in different phases, in different eras, at different times and places, God has placed all under sin so that he may then have mercy on them all both Jews and Gentiles. And when he finishes that, he can't help but say, oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And he breaks forth into this hymn of praise. And the way that it's composed, it's very clearly composed in a poetic kind of a way, like a hymn or a song would be composed and he has, he has stitched this hymn together, a hymn of praise to God. And it serves as a fitting conclusion to everything that he has been saying in Romans 9 through 11. After revealing how God has been working, he steps back in worship and says, what a great God we have. What an infinitely wise God we have. And so he says, in verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him, and for him 
are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we desire today to humble ourselves before your holy word. I pray, Father, that we would be moved to worship as Paul was moved to worship when he wrote these words. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us the infinitely wise, majestic plan that you have unfolded and that your apostle Paul has revealed to us in these last few passages that we've looked at in Romans. God, show us your glory, show us your majesty and your infinite wisdom and knowledge. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What we have in this passage, beginning in verse 33, are three exclamations. In verse 33, we have three exclamations. And these three exclamations have a central purpose, and that is to declare that God's salvation plan for history is infinitely wise. God's salvation plan for history is infinitely wise. All three of these statements in verse 33 are exclamations, meaning that at the end of each of them, you need an exclamation point because they're, they're declaring, they're proclaiming with great enthusiasm and with great passion just how great and mighty God is. And so the first exclamation, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. The depth of riches is kind of what we would call a double to communicate a single. So the depth of riches is the idea of not being able to fully plumb the depths of the vast resources of God's wisdom and knowledge. It is infinitely deep. It is infinitely rich. It is infinitely wise. And why wisdom and knowledge here are combined together and wisdom and knowledge are, I wouldn't put a sharp distinction between the two in terms of meaning, but historically throughout the scriptures, wisdom has been the attribute of God that is responsible for the creation of the world. You can go back and look at Proverbs in the opening chapters of Proverbs, Proverbs 8 and Proverbs 9, and you can see how wisdom is personified. And wisdom is talked about as a person, as being there and creating the world. And so wisdom was there in the creation of the world. Wisdom is also seen throughout Scripture as the way in which God plans his purposes and the way that those plans unfold in history. Knowledge can convey not only facts, but personal knowledge. And in this passage, in the context of Romans 9 through 11, we're probably dealing with not just the knowledge of facts, the knowledge of events, but the personal knowledge of God for his chosen people and the way that his sovereign purposes are working out in history. One commentator, Tom Schreiner, puts it this way. He says, God's knowledge does not merely mean that he foresees all that will occur, although it certainly includes that idea. 
the notion that God ordains all that comes to pass is also entailed so that the knowledge of God refers to his determining of all that happens. And in this particular context, he says, this wisdom and knowledge is particularly in light of his saving plan. It is God's wisdom, his knowledge, in the way that he has traced out history, in particular in the way that he has traced out salvation history in this role of the Jews and the Gentiles and how that he is going to bring all of these different peoples to faith in Christ in accordance with his sovereign will. It is infinitely wise. Then the second exclamation in verse 33 is, how unsearchable are his judgments? The idea of unsearchable is, it's almost impossible to fully grasp, to fully plumb the depths, to fully navigate through the judgments of God. And here, the judgments of God are not in the sense of sitting as judge in a courtroom, as in deciding between guilty and innocent, but the idea here of judgments has to do with his decisions in the way that he works out his plan. So it is his decisions in the direction of salvation history. And they're unsearchable. That you can't plumb the depths of them. And then he says the third exclamation is, or how his paths are beyond tracing out. His paths or his ways. That is the way that things happen, the direction that God takes, the, the way that his will unfolds. You can't trace it in advance. You can't take out a map and trace where God's will is going to go. Only God knows that. God's wisdom and knowledge, they're infinite. And therefore, Paul is declaring in verse 33, through these exclamations, that God's salvation plan for history is infinitely wise. Then in verses 34 and 35, we see three questions. So verse 33 has three exclamations that show us the infinite wisdom of God's plan. Verses 34 and 35 show us three questions, and these are three rhetorical questions that are all intended to communicate the same idea, and that is that God's wisdom is ultimately unknowable by finite human beings. God's infinite wisdom is ultimately unknowable by finite human beings unless God chooses to reveal it. God's infinite wisdom is ultimately unknowable by finite human beings unless God chooses to reveal it. And Paul goes back to the Old Testament to support his assertions in verse 33. And so these questions are drawn from the Old Testament. In fact, we read from two of them in Isaiah 40, a little bit earlier in the service today. Quoting from Isaiah, he says, Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? The obvious answer to those two questions is no one. And that's how Isaiah meant it in his original context as well. Isaiah went through all of these questions. Where were you when God did this? Can you weigh the dust of the earth? Can you count the stars of the heavens? 
Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? And the, the answer to all of those questions in Isaiah is no one. No one has ever counseled God. No one can counsel God because if you could counsel God, that would assume that he needed knowledge or he needed direction or he needed more information. He needed wisdom. You can't offer God counsel because he knows everything. He has all wisdom. He has all plans figured out. He knows the best way that everything should unfold. In other words, you can't give God a better plan. You ever think about that? Not only is God sovereign, but you can't give God a better plan. And now this isn't directly what Paul is referring to in this passage, but let's just stop and think about that idea in light of the things that happen in our lives. The difficult things that happen in our lives, the hardships that we go through, the losses that we experience, God is sovereign, right? And you cannot come up with a better plan than the one God has already come up with. You can't give God counsel. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has fully plumbed the depths of the mind of God? No one. You cannot fully know the mind of God. Verse 35 is a quote from the book of Job. In verse 35, Job is saying, Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? And the idea is that you cannot give God anything so that God then is obligated to you to give you anything back. And Paul's going to reveal in verse 36 the reason for that is because everything ultimately comes from God anyway. So you can't give God anything that he hasn't already had. Everything that you have, in fact, comes from God. And so God doesn't owe anyone anything. God doesn't have to repay anyone anything. He doesn't have to give back. So all three of these questions are intended to show that God's infinitely wise plan is not fully capable of being known by finite people unless God chooses to reveal aspects of it to us. And in this passage, in Romans 9 through 11, he has. God has revealed to Paul the way these things are unfolding in history. And Paul, after having received this revelation of how things are working out in history and passed that mystery along to us Christians, like he says in verse 25, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. So Paul has revealed, he has disclosed that which God has revealed to him, and it is a mysterious plan. It is a mysterious plan that would otherwise be unknowable if God had not revealed it. But now through Paul, God has revealed it, and what is Paul's reaction? Wow. That is incredible. That is huge. That is amazing. That is majestic how infinitely wise God is. Could anyone ever come up with a plan like this in which God would take his chosen people and in which he would darken their understanding and harden them for a period of time so that his mercy and grace could go outward to the nations? And then through that, 
through the gospel going outward to the nations, that then his chosen covenant people would then see that, become jealous and envious, and then it would come back again full circle and result in their salvation. It's an infinitely wise plan of God. And Paul just steps back and says, amazing. How majestic this is. And then there is a declaration in verse 36. So we've seen three exclamations that show the infinite wise plan of God. We've seen three questions that reveal to us the ultimate unknowability of God's plan unless he reveals it. And then in verse 36, we see a declaration. And this declaration says this, everything that is and everything that happens has its source support, and end in God. Everything that is and everything that happens has its ultimate source, support, and end in God. Paul says in verse 36, For from him and through him and for him are all things. From him, meaning source, right? So God is the source of everything, meaning that there would be nothing that would exist. There would be no creation. We would not be here. This world would not be here. There would be no universe at all if not for God. So before God said, let there be light, Before God brought this world into existence, there was absolutely nothing. No particles of light, no amoebas, one-celled organisms, no molecules, no atoms, no electrons and neutrons inside those atoms. Nothing. Try to wrap your mind around that for a few minutes. Absolutely nothing. Not even any time. There's no time. How do you measure time when there's nothing? How do you measure space? The distance, because space is the distance between objects, right? You can't even measure space. You can't measure time. Nothing. Until God brought it into existence. Everything has its source in God. Not only things that have been made, but even the events, even the way things unfold in history All of it is because God set it in motion, has its source in God. But he also says, not only from him, he says through him. Meaning that that as things are happening, as things are unfolding, as things exist, they continue to exist because of God. I believe it's Colossians that says that all things are being upheld By the very word of Christ's power. By him, all things not only exist, but by him, all things consist. That is, they continue to exist. So God sustains everything by his power. I've heard it said this way, that scientists cannot fully explain how our universe is held together. How with all of the the energy, the potential energy that is in 
the, the molecular, the atomic level, how all of this is held together? The theological answer is God. God holds it all together. If God were to stop his sustaining hand, then everything would cease to exist. Through him. And as, as things unfold in history, as events unfold, as our lives progress, as world events happen, they all happen under the guiding providential hand of God. Through him. But he says, not only is he the source, the support, but he is also the end. That is the goal of all things. What does that mean? It means that everything that was created was created for God. That means you and I, if you want a reason for your existence, can you think of a more existential question than that? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What, what, am, I, what am I supposed to do with my life? This verse gives you the answer. You are here for God. You are here for God. The first question of the Westminster Catechism, what is man's chief end? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We are here for God. Everything that exists, exists for God. Revelation 4.11 says that everything exists, that God created it for his pleasure. By his will, it is here and for his pleasure, it is here. We are here for God. And all of history, all the events that transpire, they're under his watchful providence. Why? Because it's all moving toward the appointed end that God has decreed. Toward the culmination, the climax of the kingdom of God and the new Jerusalem coming down and a new heavens and a new earth in which God's people will dwell in peace and enjoy forever in the presence of their God. So that God will be glorified. And that reminds us that what is ultimate is the worship of God. The salvation of Jews, the salvation of Gentiles that Paul has been talking about in this passage, the salvation of these different peoples in the various ways that God is accomplishing that in his sovereign will, that is secondary to the primary purpose of all things. And that is to bring honor and glory to God. So as Jews are saved, they bring glory to God. As Gentiles are saved, they bring glory to God. Everything that happens is for God. John Piper put it this way one time. He said, missions is not ultimate. Worship is. Missions exists because worship does not. In other words, the reason we go out to the nations in missions is because there are places in the world where the worship of God does not exist. So missions serves the end goal of worship. That God in Christ and his spirit may be worshipped and adored by all peoples on earth for all time. So three exclamations, three questions, one declaration, and then he concludes with one doxology. And that is, to him be the glory forever. Amen. To God be the glory forever. Amen. That is, to God, to the one creator, 
the master of the universe, to him is all praise, all glory, all worship, all majesty, all honor, everything pointed toward him. And Paul declares an amen to give his affirmation, his agreement with the fact that God is to be worshipped in this way for all time by his people. My prayer is that we would be able to feel some of what Paul felt, I think, when he wrote these words. I can't help but think that Paul was just overwhelmed by the, the revelation of what God had showed him in the way that he is working out his plan. And, and after writing these words, it's, it's almost like he just had to take a time out. And he had to praise God. And he shared that praise of God with us in writing it down. And so I pray that we will respond as he did and we'll respond in worship and in, ma- and in honoring the majesty of God for how infinitely wise and holy he is. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father God, we're reminded this morning of just how small we are. We're reminded how finite, how limited, how temporary we are. But Lord, you are eternal. You are infinite. Your wisdom and knowledge are immeasurable. Your plan is awesome and majestic. Lord, I pray that you would stir within our hearts, awaken our hearts to worship you. To just stand in awe of you today. Lord, may, may all glory and praise flow to you for all ages. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.